Section 24 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 24. Scipio Africanus crushes Hannibal at Zama and subjugates Carthage, B.C. 202, by Livy, Part 2. Hannibal, slipping off during the confusion with a few horsemen, came to Adrumetum, not quitting the field till he had tried every expedient both in the battle and before the engagement, having, according to the admission of Scipio and everyone skilled in military science, acquired the fame of having marshaled his troops on that day with singular judgment. He placed his elephants in the front, in order that their desultory attack and insupportable violence might prevent the Romans from following their standards and preserving their ranks, on which they placed their principal dependence. Then he posted his auxiliaries before the line of Carthaginians, in order that men who were made up of the refuse of all nations and who were not bound by honor but by gain, might not have any retreat open to them in case they fled, at the same time that the first ardor and impetuosity might be exhausted upon them, and, if they could render no other service, that the weapons of the enemy might be blunted in wounding them. Next he placed the Carthaginian and African soldiers, on whom he placed all his hopes, in order that, being equal to the enemy in every other respect, they might have the advantage of them inasmuch as, being fresh and unimpaired in strength themselves, they would fight with those who were fatigued and wounded. The Italians he removed into the rear, separating them also by an intervening space, as he knew not with certainty whether they were friends or enemies. Hannibal, after performing this as it were his last work of valor, fled to Adrumetum, whence, having been summoned to Carthage, he returned thither in the sixth and thirtieth year after he had left it when a boy, and confessed in the Senate House that he was defeated, not only in the battle but in the war, and that there was no hope of safety in anything but in obtaining peace. Immediately after the battle, Scipio, having taken and plundered the enemy's camp, returned to the sea and his ships with an immense booty, news having reached him that Publius Lentulus had arrived at Utica with fifty men of war and a hundred transports laden with every kind of stores, concluding that he ought to bring before Carthage everything which could increase the consternation already existing there. After sending Laelius to Rome to report his victory, he ordered Gnaeus Octavius to conduct the legions thither by land, and setting out himself from Utica with the fresh fleet of Lentulus added to his former one, made for the harbor of Carthage. When he had arrived within a short distance, he was met by a Carthaginian ship decked with fillets and branches of olive. There were ten deputies, the leading men in the state, sent at the instance of Hannibal to solicit peace, to whom, when they had come up to the stern of the general's ship, holding out the badges of suppliants, entreating and imploring the protection and compassion of Scipio, the only answer given was that they must come to Tunis, to which place he would move his camp. After taking a view of the site of Carthage, not so much for the sake of acquainting himself with it for any present object 
as to dispirit the enemy, he returned to Utica, having recalled Octavius to the same place. As they were proceeding thence to Tunis, they received intelligence that Vermina, the son of Syphax, with a greater number of horse than foot, was coming to the assistance of the Carthaginians, a part of his infantry with all the cavalry having attacked them on their march on the first day of the Saturnalia, routed the Numidians with little opposition, and as every way by which they could escape in flight was blocked up, for the cavalry surrounded them on all sides, 15,000 men were slain, 1,200 were taken alive, with 1,500 Numidian horses and 72 military standards. The prince himself fled from the field with a few attendants during the confusion. The camp was then pitched near Tunis in the same place as before, and thirty ambassadors came to Scipio from Carthage. These behaved in a manner even more calculated to excite compassion than the former, in proportion as their situation was more pressing. But from the recollection of their recent perfidy, they were heard with considerably less pity. In the council, Though all were impelled by just resentment to demolish Carthage, yet, when they reflected upon the magnitude of the undertaking and the length of time which would be consumed in the siege of so well-fortified and strong a city, while Scipio himself was uneasy in consequence of the expectation of a successor, who would come in for the glory of having terminated the war, though it was accomplished already by the exertions and danger of another, the minds of all were inclined to peace. The next day the ambassadors being called in again, and with many rebukes of their perfidy, warned that instructed by so many disasters they would at length believe in the existence of the gods and the obligation of an oath, these conditions of the peace were stated to them, that they should enjoy their liberty and live under their own laws, that they should possess such cities and territories as they had enjoyed before the war and with the same boundaries, and that the Romans should on that day desist from devastation, that they should restore to the Romans all deserters and fugitives, giving up all their ships of war except ten triremes, with such tamed elephants as they had, and that they should not tame any more, that they should not carry on war in or out of Africa without the permission of the Roman people, that they should make restitution to Massinissa and form a league with him, that they should furnish corn and pay for the auxiliaries until the ambassadors had returned from Rome, that they should pay 10,000 talents of silver in equal annual installments distributed over 50 years, that they should give a hundred hostages, according to the pleasure of Scipio, not younger than 14 nor older than 30, that he would grant them a truce on condition that the transports, together with their cargoes, which had been seized during the former truce, were restored. Otherwise they would have no truce nor any hope of a peace. When the ambassadors who were ordered to bear these conditions home reported them in an assembly, and Gisco had stood forth to dissuade them from the terms, and was being listened to by the multitude, who were at once indisposed for peace and unfit for war, Hannibal, indignant that such language should be held and listened to at such a juncture, laid hold of Gisco with his own hand, and dragged him from his elevated position. This unusual sight in a free state, having raised a murmur among the people, the soldier, disconcerted at the liberties which the citizens took, thus addressed them. 
Having left you when nine years old, I have returned after a lapse of 36 years. I flatter myself I am well acquainted with the qualifications of a soldier, having been instructed in them from my childhood, sometimes by my own situation and sometimes by that of my country. The privileges, the laws, and customs of the city and the forum you ought to teach me. Having thus apologized for his indiscretion, he discoursed largely concerning the peace, showing how inoppressive the terms were and how necessary it was. The greatest difficulty was that of the ships which had been seized during the truce. Nothing was to be found except the ships themselves, nor was it easy to collect the property, because those who were charged with having it were opposed to the peace. It was resolved that the ships should be restored and that the men, at least, should be looked up, and as to whatever else was missing, that it should be left to Scipio to put a value upon it, and that the Carthaginians should make compensation accordingly in money. There are those who say that Hannibal went from the field of battle to the seacoast, whence he immediately sailed in a ship, which he had ready for the purpose, to King Antiochus, and that when Scipio demanded above everything that Hannibal should be given up to him, answer was made that Hannibal was not in Africa. After the ambassadors returned to Scipio, the quaestors were ordered to give in an account made out from the public registers of the public property which had been in the ships, and the owners to make a return of the private property. For the amount of the value, 25,000 pounds of silver were required to be paid down, and a truce for three months was granted to the Carthaginians. It was added that during the time of the truce, they should not send ambassadors anywhere else than to Rome, and that whatever ambassadors came to Carthage, they should not dismiss them before informing the Roman general who they were and what they sought. With the Carthaginian ambassadors, Lucius Veturius Philo, Marcus Martius Ralla, and Lucius Scipio, brother of the general, were sent to Rome. The Roman, together with the Carthaginian ambassadors, having arrived at Rome from Africa, the Senate was assembled at the Temple of Bologna, when Lucius Veturius Philo stated, to the great joy of the Senate, that a battle had been fought with Hannibal, which was decisive of the fate of the Carthaginians, and that a period was at length put to that calamitous war. He added what formed a small accession to their successes, that Vermina, the son of Syphax, had been vanquished. He was then ordered to go forth to the public assembly and impart the joyful tidings to the people. Then, a thanksgiving having been appointed, all the temples in the city were thrown open and supplications for three days were decreed. Publius Scipio was continued in command in the province of Africa with the armies which he then had. The Carthaginian ambassadors were called before the Senate. On observing their ages and dignified appearance, for they were by far the first men of the state, all promptly declared their conviction that now they were sincere in their desire to effect a peace. Hasdrubal, however, surnamed by his countryman Haidus, who had invariably recommended peace and was opposed to the Barcine faction, was regarded with greater interest than the rest. On these accounts, the greater weight was attached to him when transferring the blame of the war from the state at large to the cupidity of a few. After a speech of varied character, in which he sometimes refuted the charges which had been brought, at other times admitted some, 
lest by imprudently denying what was manifestly true, their forgiveness might be the more difficult. And then, even admonishing the conscript fathers to be guided by the rules of decorum and moderation in their prosperity, he said that if the Carthaginians had listened to himself and Hanno, and had been disposed to make a proper use of circumstances, they would themselves have dictated the terms of peace, instead of begging it as they now did. That it rarely happened that good fortune and a sound judgment were bestowed upon men at the same time. That the Roman people were therefore invincible, because when successful they forgot not the maxims of wisdom and prudence, and indeed it would have been matter of astonishment did they act otherwise. That those persons to whom success was a new and uncommon thing proceeded to a pitch of madness in their ungoverned transports in consequence of their not being accustomed to it. That to the Roman people the joy arising from victory was a matter of common occurrence, and was now almost become old-fashioned, that they had extended their empire more by sparing the vanquished than by conquering. The language employed by the others was of a nature more calculated to excite compassion. They represented from what a height of power the Carthaginian affairs had fallen, that nothing besides the walls of Carthage remained to those who a little time ago held almost the whole world in subjection by their arms, that shut up within these, they could see nothing anywhere on sea or land which owned their authority, that they would retain possession of their city itself and their household gods only in case the Roman people should refrain from venting their indignation upon these, which is all that remains for them to do. When it was manifest that the fathers were moved by compassion, it is said that one of the senators, violently incensed at the perfidy of the Carthaginians, immediately asked with a loud voice by what gods they would swear in striking the league, since they had broken their faith with those by whom they swore in striking the former one. By those same, replied Hasdrubal, who have shown such determined hostility to the violators of treaties. The minds of all being disposed to peace, Gnaeus Lentulus, whose province the fleet was, protested against the decree of the Senate. Upon this, Manius Achilleus and Quintus Minucius, tribunes of the people, put the question to the people whether they willed and ordered that the Senate should decree that peace should be made with the Carthaginians, whom they ordered to grant that peace and whom to conduct the army out of Africa. All the tribes ordered respecting the peace according as the question had been put that Publius Scipio should grant the peace, and that he also should conduct the army home. Agreeably to this order, the Senate decreed that Publius Scipio, acting according to the opinion of the ten deputies, should make peace with the Carthaginian people on what terms he pleased. The Carthaginians then returned thanks to the Senate, and requested that they might be allowed to enter the city and converse with their countrymen, who had been made prisoners and were in custody of the state, observing that some of them were their relations and friends, and men of rank, and some persons to whom they were charged with messages from their relations. Having obtained these requests, they again asked permission to ransom such of them as they pleased, when they were desired to give in their names. Having given in a list of about two hundred, a decree of the Senate was passed to the effect 
that the Carthaginian ambassadors should be allowed to take away into Africa to Publius Cornelius Scipio, 200 of the Carthaginian prisoners, selecting whom they pleased, and that they should convey to him a message that if the peace were concluded, he should restore them to the Carthaginians without ransom. The heralds being ordered to go into Africa to strike the league, at their own desire the Senate passed a decree that they should take with them flint stones of their own and vervain of their own, that the Roman praetor should command them to strike the league, and that they should demand of him herbs. The description of herb usually given to the heralds is taken from the capital. Thus, the Carthaginians being allowed to depart from Rome when they had gone into Africa to Scipio concluded the peace on the terms before mentioned. They delivered up their men of war, their elephants, deserters, fugitives, and 4,000 prisoners, among whom was Quintus Terentius Cullio, a senator. The ships he ordered to be taken out into the main and burned. Some say there were 500 of every description of those which are worked with oars, and that the sudden sight of these when burning occasioned as deep a sensation of grief to the Carthaginians as if Carthage had been in flames. The measures adopted respecting the deserters were more severe than those respecting the fugitives. Those who were of the Latin confederacy were decapitated. The Romans were crucified. The last peace with the Carthaginians was made 40 years before this in the consulate of Quintus Lutatius and Aulus Manlius. The war commenced 23 years afterward in the consulate of Publius Cornelius and Tiberius Sempronius. It was concluded in the 17th year in the consulate of Gnaeus Cornelius and Publius Aelius Paetus. It is related that Scipio frequently said afterward that first the ambition of Tiberius Claudius and afterward of Gnaeus Cornelius were the causes which prevented his terminating the war by the destruction of Carthage. The Carthaginians finding difficulty in raising the first sum of money to be paid as their finances were exhausted by a protracted war, and in consequence great lamentation and grief arising in the Senate House, it is said that Hannibal was observed laughing, and when Hasdrubal Haidus rebuked him for laughing amid the public grief, when he himself was the occasion of the tears which were shed, he said, If, as the expression of the countenance is discerned by the sight, so the inward feelings of the mind could be distinguished, it would clearly appear to you that that laughter which you censure came from a heart not elated with joy, but frantic with misfortunes. And yet it is not so ill-timed as those absurd and inconsistent tears of yours. Then you ought to have wept when our arms were taken from us, our ships burned, and we were forbidden to engage in foreign wars, for that was the wound by which we fell. Nor is it just that you should suppose that the measures which the Romans have adopted toward you have been dictated by animosity. No great state can remain at rest long together. If it has no enemy abroad, it finds one at home in the same manner as over-robust bodies seem secure from external causes, but are encumbered with their own strength. So far, forsooth, we are affected with the public calamities as they reach our private affairs, nor is there any circumstance attending them which is felt more acutely than the loss of money. 
Accordingly, when the spoils were torn down from vanquished Carthage, when you beheld her left unarmed and defenseless amid so many armed nations of Africa, none heaved a sigh. Now, because a tribute is to be levied from private property, you lament with one accord, as though at the funeral of the state. How much do I dread, lest you should soon be made sensible that you have shed tears this day for the lightest of your misfortunes. Such were the sentiments which Hannibal delivered to the Carthaginians. Scipio, having summoned an assembly, presented Massinissa, in addition to his paternal dominions, with the town of Cirta, and the other cities and territories which had passed from the kingdom of Syphax into the possession of the Romans. He ordered Gnaeus Octavius to conduct the fleet to Sicily and deliver it to Gnaeus Cornelius the consul, and directed the Carthaginian ambassadors to go to Rome that the arrangements he had made with the advice of the ten deputies might be ratified by the sanction of the fathers and the order of the people. Peace having been established by sea and land, he embarked his troops and crossed over to Lilybaeum in Sicily, whence, having sent a great part of his soldiers by ships, he himself proceeded through Italy, which was rejoicing not less on account of the peace than the victory. While not only the inhabitants of the cities poured out to show him honor, but crowds of rustics thronged the roads. He arrived at Rome and entered the city in a triumph of unparalleled splendor. He brought into the treasury 123,000 pounds of silver. He distributed to each of his soldiers 400 asses out of the spoils. By the death of Syphax, which took place but a short time before at Tiber, whither he had been removed from Alba, a diminution was occasioned in the interest of the pageant rather than in the glory of him who triumphed. His death, however, was attended with circumstances which produced a strong sensation, for he was buried at the public expense. Polybius, an author by no means to be despised, asserts that this king was led in the triumph. Quintus Terentius Cullio followed Scipio in his triumph with a cap of liberty on his head, and during the remainder of his life treated him with the respect due to him as the author of his freedom. I have not been able to ascertain whether the partiality of the soldiers or the favor of the people fixed upon him the surname of Africanus, or whether in the same manner as Felix was applied to Sulla and Magnus to Pompey in the memory of our fathers, it originated in the flattery of his friends. He was doubtless the first general who was distinguished by a name derived from the nation which he had conquered. Afterward, in imitation of his example, some, by no means his equals in his victories, affixed splendid inscriptions on their statues and gave honorable surnames to their families. End of section 24